Over the years of my hosting WGTD's morning show, I have read and then spoken with the authors of many interesting books about the Kennedy family. But I'm not sure I have ever read a book about the Kennedys that was as engrossing as the book that we're going to be talking about today. It's the latest book by prolific author Neil Thompson. The book is titled The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of an American Dynasty. And in this book, we are meeting in remarkably vivid detail the first generation of the Kennedy family uh, to come to the United States. And in humble beginnings indeed, <laughs> that doesn't begin to describe uh, the difficulties that were faced uh, by Bridget and Patrick Kennedy. And uh, it makes the sort of overarching story of the Kennedy family and subsequent generations all the more remarkable. Neil Thompson uh, has given us uh, several really interesting books uh, before that, including uh, Hurricane Season, A Coach's Team, and Their Triumph in the Time of Katrina, uh, A Curious Man, The Strange and Brilliant Life of Robert, Believe It or Not, Ripley, and Kickflip Boys, A Memoir of Freedom, Rebellion, and the Chaos of Fatherhood. This latest book, published by Mariner Books, an imprint of HarperCollins, uh, is, again, The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of an American Dynasty. Neil Thompson, we welcome you to the morning show. Well, that's quite a setup, Greg. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to talking about the book. And I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm so glad we can have, the, have this chance to talk. Uh, one thing that I neglected to mention uh, in what I just said about you is that this is, in a sense, an intensely personal book for you to write. That is uh, the experience of this first generation of Kennedys in America uh, touches on some of your own family background as well. Explain that very personal connection. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on it because I think, I think that personal connection is why it took me almost 20 years to figure out how to write this book. Um, uh, the Sort of the origins of this this thing go back, and I write about it in the opening pages of the book. But they go back more than 20 years to 1999, when JFK Jr. died. Uh, I was a newspaper reporter working for the Baltimore Sun, and was sent up to Cape Cod to the Kennedy compound at Hyannisport to await word on on what was happening with JFK. He was at that time missing, and then they found his plane and. I was in a bar with a bartender who, who started crying when, they, when we learned that JFK Jr. had died. And so it was part of the chaos of that coverage. And uh, you mentioned the name of what I would soon learn were the first Kennedys, Bridget and Patrick. And after I'm driving back from Hyannisport for that story and JFK Jr.'s death, I drive by through New Jersey, not far from the uh, cemetery that held my grandparents, Bridget and Patrick who were also Irish immigrants. Um, and so the idea, or the, at least the, uh, the nugget of an idea, started back in 1999. For years after that, I tried to find a way in. What's really the story here? Is it a personal story? Is it a way for me to explore my own Irish heritage and the, sort of the connections between my Irish immigrant grandparents and the Kennedy uh, uh, ancestors who, who experienced similar discrimination and all kinds of hardship? coming to a, a country that didn't necessarily want them. Um, other books, some of which you just mentioned, kept intruding, but it was uh, uh, just a, f a few years ago, um, uh, not too long
long after the election of 2016 when I started hearing word for word some of the same rhetoric around immigration and keep them out and build a wall and the things we're all familiar with now um, and realizing those were the same words that were used against Irish immigrants in the Kennedy's day. Um, and, and that's when I've realized, even though this is a personal story to me, and I do touch on it in the very beginning and the end of the book, it's a universal story about what it's like to come to a new land and what it's like to feel so uh, uh, alone uh, confronting um, a, a nation that doesn't necessarily want you, which I was shocked to find was truly the situation for the first Kennedys going back two generations before JFK. Hmm. Um, so the personal kind of meshed with the, the historical for me, and it was kind of a, a, an ideal um, project for me to uh, dive into, as well as digging back into a story we thought we all knew. It's something I've done with other books. What's really the backstory? How did this all really begin? Hmm. As you as you say in the book's introduction, it was it was not until uh, the the death of JFK Jr. that uh, that you uh, that something aroused your simmering Irishness. You tell us that really before this, uh, you had not thought too deeply about your Irish roots. Uh, so this just I mean this was who you were, and yet it wasn't something that in a sense you had done much reflecting upon it, apparently. Yeah, not necessarily. Even though I grew up, um, I'm Irish on one side of my family, on my mother's is uh, first-generation Irish, um, and I was raised in an Irish Catholic community. I was surrounded by Quinns and Murphys and O'Gormans, and, uh, you know, half the town seemed like they were Irish-descended. Uh, um, so you would think I would have some sense of that heritage, and I, I I just didn't. I mean, my dad went to Notre Dame, so I rooted for Notre Dame. Um, uh, I went to church on Sunday, um, but I, I didn't uh, worship the Kennedys like um, some Irish Catholic families did. Um, uh, we didn't have a picture of JFK on the wall growing up. So it was there, but this uh, sense of, uh, as you described from the book, my Irishness, um, but it was it was kind of latent. It didn't really... Um, awaken, I would say, until until later in life. Hmm. Um, and you know, I I look back now and think I wish I had asked my Irish grandmother uh, Bridget, who went by the name Della. Um, wish I had asked her more about what her experience was. But you know, as a kid, you don't think about these things until it's too late. A lot of us feel that that sort of regret. Well, I'm glad that uh, that all of this came together in a way that. Uh, galvanized you at last to, to, to write this uh, this tremendously interesting book. My understanding is that you were given uh, sort of unprecedented access to certain private papers in the Kennedy family that uh, really helped to make this book as uh, sort of richly illuminating as it is. Uh, explain uh, the nature of those private papers, where they are housed, how you gained access, and what kind of value they were to you? Yeah, the challenge I discovered or ran into early on with this project was that the people I'm writing about, Bridget Murphy Kennedy and Patrick Kennedy, who came here in the 1840s after the 
potato famine started to ravage their country, they didn't leave behind letters and memoirs. They were poor immigrants just trying to keep uh, their family together. And so there wasn't initially uh, a whole lot of easily accessible material about them or their children. Um, I had many years ago, when when this uh, idea first arose, contacted the John F. Kennedy Library uh, just south of Boston to ask them what kind of information they had about uh, the early Kennedys. And there was some, and they sent me some some very valuable uh, documentation uh, that they've digitized. I visited the library and was able to access some additional information. So the, through that access and cooperation with the JFK Library, I started to collect some of the material I needed. I also traveled to Ireland and visited the homestead where Patrick Kennedy was born and raised. Um, but there was always a little bit missing, and I knew from probably 2016 or 17 that the JFK Library held the personal papers of P.J. Kennedy, who was JFK's grandfather. And I started, call it politely asking, borderline nagging the (laughs) library to uh, open those up and, and provide access to those. And they are a hardworking crew and super generous, um, but these papers were old and fragile. Many of them were onion skin paper, so they kept explaining to me that it's a delicate process. They have to be scanned and digitized uh, off-site, and um, and uh, as a federal agency, they have to go through these proper steps. So every year, sometimes twice a year, maybe three times, I would uh, contact the head archivist there and say, hey, just checking in again, anything happening with the, the PJ papers? Um, and that it kept getting delayed, and I think that probably contributed to the delay in my committing myself fully to this project. Um, but it was probably, I think, 2018 or 19 that they said, okay, we're going to do this. It's in our next fiscal calendar. We're going to focus on getting these papers done. Um, and they got started, and things were looking good, and I was getting ready to go visit to see them in person because that's what they prefer. Uh, and then COVID hit, and <laughs> things ground to a halt, and I was terrified that this was going to affect my project. I was pretty far along at that point and feel like I had enough to write the story even without those papers. Um, but then, thankfully, again, with more nagging on my part, they, the archivist said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We still have more to process because it's it's slow going, but we're going to give you access to the first two-thirds or half, um, and they sent me this file, and I practically cried when I received the, 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 the file of all these documents that were letters, personal letters, business letters, business documents that P.J. Kennedy had left behind. I, I know we'll get to his story soon and talk in more detail about his political career and his business career and how he, in my view, is kind of a, an overlooked figure, as was his mother in the Kennedy saga, but those papers really helped me get inside the head of P.J. Kennedy and learn a little bit more about his character, what kind of person he was, how giving he was to the community, um, how how he loaned money to other incoming Irish immigrants, how he wrote letters of recommendation to try and find jobs for incoming Irish immigrants. He was really a kind of a a community organizer, um, and I argue in the book he gets that uh, sensibility from his uh, mother, Bridget, uh, who deeply influenced him and deeply influenced his career. So those those papers really um, kind of were uh, 
not a cherry on top of the research, but they really added some depth to my ability to bring him and his, his mother to life in ways that they hadn't been before. We're speaking with Neil Thompson, author of The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of an American Dynasty. Interestingly enough, your, your book, after its introduction, uh, does not begin at the start of the story, but uh, 10 years after the start of the story, a really crucial moment in this story in uh, November of 1858. Uh, the prologue uh, of your book begins when Bridget Murphy Kennedy buries her husband, Patrick. Uh, I think it's a brilliant choice. Uh, explain why you think it's a great way to sort of frame the story that follows. Why is this moment so crucial? Yeah, thanks for picking up on that, because I wrestled with that a lot. Uh, how do I introduce um, a book about a family that most of us think we know and many readers might be maxed out on? You know, um, uh, you, you said yourself that you've read many Kennedy books over the years, as have I. And so I, I wanted something... I wanted to open the book with something unique um, and revealing, primarily revealing about the character of Bridget Kennedy. Um, I didn't want to necessarily start with the potato famine and the, the dangerous crossing that many Irish immigrants made to, to escape their crumbling homeland. That, that story's been done, um, and I was wary of repeating some of the excellent work of previous historians around the famine and the coffin ships that they, they arrived on and, uh, and that kind of thing. <clears throat> but I wanted to introduce readers right away to who Bridget was and what she was up against. And that scene is really one of the darker moments of, of an already pretty dim uh, life to date, uh, mid-1850s. She's made it to America. She's gotten married and started her family but she's already lost one son to disease because they live in these crowded, um, disease-ridden tenement buildings, in their case in East Boston, across from an island across from downtown Boston. And then she loses her husband as well. Um, And he's left her with very little money. She's working as a maid, uh, like many Irish women did when they came to America, like my grandmother did when she came to America. Um, And what's going to happen to her? Uh, you know, I wanted to tease out <clears throat> the the terror that she must have faced and her kids must have faced when they're putting uh, Patrick into the ground. Uh, and I also wanted to tease up uh, the, the the depth of the discrimination that they faced, which forced Bridget to bury Patrick in west of Boston in Cambridge because Catholics weren't allowed to be buried in the city of Boston. Um, at that time, there was such an anti-Irish, anti-Catholic sentiment among the, the blue, blue, blue bloods and Brahmins who controlled the, the city of Boston at that time. There was only one Catholic cemetery, and it was full and often under kind of constant assault by lawmakers to try and shut it down completely. So she had no choice but to leave the city, make this slow carriage ride west to um, to Cambridge to put her husband in the ground. Um, so it, it uh, hopefully it sets up a, a number of the themes of the book, that opening scene, um, as well as showing um, Bridget's uh, personality that she started with an ex- 
extremely tall hill to climb when she came to America, and then it just got worse. Uh, this is uh, just a, a brief excerpt from the end of the prologue, which I think is a really great example of your beautiful writing. So this is at the graveside of her, of her husband. Had it all been a mistake, thinking she could start a full new life in America, she has no choice now but to return to the job she took on when she'd arrived 10 years earlier. She'll go back to serving others, a domestic, a biddy, a maid. Her husband's death might have marked a tipping point into a tragic descent, into a lifetime as an overworked maid, watching as her daughters became servants too, and her son an underpaid dock worker, all of them destined to die young and poor among the reviled hordes of refugees. Instead, in a remarkable display of drive and resilience over the next decade, Bridget will march from strength to strength. That's just a beautiful way to set up what is uh, indeed an exciting and remarkable story. Again, we're talking with Neil Thompson about his newest book, The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of an American Dynasty. You've already made brief mention, and you certainly describe it in, in, uh, in vivid detail, uh, the way in which Ireland was decimated by the, the, uh, the, the, the infamous potato famine. But you tell us uh, towards the beginning of Chapter 1 that unlike many others who stepped onto whatever ship carried her to America, uh, you write, Bridget Murphy was not leaving home to escape starvation. She was driven to this moment by a different kind of hunger. Explain that different kind of hunger that was inspiring Bridget to take this gigantic leap of faith. Yeah, I, you know, I was... What I love about this this job, when I'm able to do it uh, fully, as I was with this book, I, is learning more about bits of history that I thought I knew, and then just re- always learning how little I actually knew. So with the potato famine, um, you know, I knew the general broad outlines. The potato crops died across the country. Um, farmers who were tenant farmers, uh, it, most of them across Ireland because the land was owned by English landlords. Um, they, uh, they were uh, decimated because they had to grow crops to pay their own rent, and the potato crops were, were what they lived off of. That's what they ate. Um, so it was a complicated thing when the primary source of sustenance for their families is gone. So broad outlines, uh, you, you know, a, thousand, or a million people died um, give or take, and at least a million, perhaps as many as two million people fled the country. Um, uh, just a scenes of chaos and desperation. It was uh, incredible uh, how, how quickly that, um, that famine ravaged the country. Bridget and her family were farmers and not well off, but, but they didn't starve to death. They were able to hold on to their farm. But you're right, and you pick up on an interesting uh, piece of the story of Bridget, um, it's not she didn't maybe necessarily have to leave because of starvation um, or some of the other uh, desperate measures that people were uh, facing um, Bridget left because she wanted to leave you know Ireland was even before the famine was not uh, a hopeful place for young women um, if they were lucky they'd find a, a, a farmer uh, to marry and raise their kids on a on a, on a farm on a rented farm maybe uh, just a, a you know an acre or so that was the, the life she was uh, kind of destined for in Ireland 
So a lot of women, um, I wouldn't say a lot, but there were women like Bridget who decided that this was a good, uh, this was their chance to get out. Um, and uh, we don't know exactly what she was thinking at the time because she didn't leave us letters, but I, I, I do think she was part of this uh, core group of women who, who saw the famine as an opportunity to get out of Ireland and start a new life and hopefully get to a place like America and start making some money and send it back home to help the family, which is what Bridget did. But I think that uh, that initial escape from Ireland says a lot about her, and I use the word hunger there because I think you see that uh, throughout the rest of her life. She was hungry for more. She didn't want to settle for what she was initially destined for, either a poor uh, farmer's wife or, in America, a poor widowed maid. She was always uh, striving for something more than her due. <clears throat> and then you see that through the rest of her life, and I think it trickles down through the, 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 the bloodline as well. At the end of chapter one, we read these words, A generation of Bridget's chose to take a chance on a new dawn rather than wait for marriage in an ancient land run by church and queen. Many left home, wings wide with a sense of adventure, optimism, and purpose, believing they could accomplish things in America that Ireland would surely have quashed. In Ireland, a woman was powerless, voiceless. In the United States of America, perhaps she'd find independence and a chance to speak her mind. Better to start anew and afar, if she could just survive the 3,000 miles of ocean. Those last words set up uh, the chapter in the book that I was really not prepared for, uh, this chapter called Bridget at Sea, in which uh, you imagine the kind of harrowing uh, voyage across the Atlantic, which she and so many others uh, endured. And, of course, we don't even know specifically the ship on which uh, Bridget made this journey to America, but we know a lot about what this voyage was like for so many others, and it's just unimaginable. And one of the things you tell us, this leapt out at me, is that uh, for someone who was Irish traveling to America on a British ship, which I think is most often what would happen, that they already, even before they reached America, were facing terrible discrimination and mistreatment because they were Irish. I mean, in other words, that... That bigotry was already there when uh, they'd scarcely left the dock. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, I'm afraid, to talk about this, but just maybe summarize a, a, just a little bit of, of what one uh, reads in this chapter of Bridget's story. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say one thing about uh, Bridget. It says a lot about who she was, that she would willingly put herself in that situation on, on these ships that were by the time she left, were well known for the disease aboard those ships and the, and the harsh treatment by the uh, English captains and crew. You know, they, it took at least a month, sometimes twice as long, at sea to get from Liverpool, which is where many of those ships left from, uh, to get to Boston or New York or New Orleans or Baltimore. And the, the horrors that they faced at sea are, I, you know, it's another piece of the story that I, I knew bits of, but once I drilled down deep and found other uh, sources from the, that period of time, you know, first-person accounts of what it was like to be aboard these ships, it was terrifying. 
you know, illness, mistreatment by the crew, not enough provisions. They're sleeping below decks in these tiny little bunks, sometimes two to a bunk. You know, uh, uh, I think it was a two-foot-wide uh, uh, shelf that they were giving, but sometimes there had to be two people sleeping on that shelf. Um, you know, icebergs gouging these ships, fires uh, sinking them, um, and so many deaths uh, across the, 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 the journey that bodies were just wrapped in sailcloth and tossed overboard. Um, you know, there's one uh, account uh, that I uh, quote from where one of these passengers describes it as plunk, 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 just these bodies getting dropped into the ocean day after day. Um, so it took a lot. It took a pretty significant commitment to say, I'm going to put myself in that situation just so I can get to America. And, you know, hopefully it's resonant uh, of the today's um, situations in, in certain uh, uh, countries that are facing their own challenges. And you, you realize why people are putting themselves in those kinds of situations, crossing borders, getting into, you know, rickety boats to escape, because they're so hungry, like Bridget was, for a new start. Hmm. And one of the things that's uh, quite remarkable is that it is so many women, more women than men, who are willingly, or at least to some extent, uh, many of them willingly subjecting themselves to this uh, extraordinary peril. You write, Irish women led the way west, outnumbering male emigres in a female-dominated migration, making the Irish the only 19th century immigrant group with more women than men. Can you explain uh, why that would be so? Yeah, there were a lot of interesting factors going on there, um, You know, one of which was that the Irish married later than some other uh, 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 countries. Uh, they... Uh, often postpone marriage until you know late 20s or even 30 um, partly because there just wasn't enough money to go around and and um, or enough jobs so uh, men and women were always working until a little bit later in life before they either found a spouse or decided it was time to settle down um, but uh, in in the case of the famine the women uh, were, were the first to say you know what I'm, I'm out of here <laughs> Like we described with Bridget's situation, they they didn't have great prospects if they had stayed in Ireland, and so many of them decided uh, either to just flee and and get away, or um, a more um, uh, sort of hopeful view of it was that they decided, I'm going to go to America and start anew, and see what it's like, get settled, and then I'll call for my you know siblings or parents and, and relatives to come over, but I'll be the one to go over and sort of put the stake in the ground. And, and remarkably, uh, and it says a lot about the strength grid of Irish women like Bridget, uh, many of the women chose to, to play that role, to be the first to cross over to America and get things started. Um, so just one of many, what I found revelations about the specific, specific circumstances of the Irish um, facing the, the tragedy of that famine is that the women were the ones who raised their hand and said, all right, I'll go. I'll take this on. I'm going to do this. Wow, incredible. You've already touched on the fact that much of this story has a resonance with today and, uh, and the plight of refugees uh, all, all around the globe. Um, I found another fairly recent or current uh, resonance 
uh, in the opening of the fourth chapter, which is Bridget in the City, where we uh, get a sense of what Bridget uh, Murphy may have experienced when she first reached these shores and reached the city of Boston. Uh, you write there, for many, life in America, that is for these emigres, began with a scramble to connect with relatives or friends who preceded them. Irish immigrants in Boston grabbed the latest copy of the Boston Pilot and turned to the information wanted section full of items from and about the disconnected diaspora. These advertisements, subsequently known as the Searching for Missing Friends ads, could be placed at a cost of $1 for four weeks. They read like the collective anxieties of immigrants across time and place. Any information, dead or alive, will thankfully be received for such and such. Arrived in America about two years since and have not heard from such and such. And so on and so on. Thousands of such pleas appeared in the pilot through the mid-19th century, mostly from famine immigrants looking for sons and daughters, long-lost siblings, co-workers, or errant husbands. I'm reminded a little bit of those heartbreaking uh, paper placards that dotted New York City uh, in the wake of 9-11 uh, and, and the plight of people who are desperate for information and in so many cases information that uh, maybe never comes or, or questions that are ultimately never answered. And what you remind us is that for so many who made this perilous voyage across the Atlantic, uh, one of the worst things about it was just the terrible limbo of not knowing what had become of loved ones who had attempted that voyage and so on. Or once they get here, desperate to try to find people with whom to connect. Fortunately for Bridget, she was able to make those connections with loved ones who were already here. Yeah, I just got a chill when you mentioned 9-11. I hadn't really thought about those you know, posters that we all saw uh, uh, searching for, for missing loved ones. Um, and I guess, uh, y- y- you know, you see those at, at, at other times and places when there's a, you know, large-scale loss of life and people are t- just frantically trying to find uh, someone who, who, who's missing. Um, and, you know, obviously today it's easier to, to connect. Uh, we're so digitized and globally connected, but I can't imagine what it would be like back in Britain today to just show up on the, uh, the shore of a new country and, you know, these docks, I described them briefly in the book, when the ships pull up, they're just scammers everywhere and it's crowded and noisy and confusing and it's just bedlam. Um, and you're alone, as she was, and, and just running around trying to find a, a familiar face. And, uh, you know, I, 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 it says a lot that people would put themselves in that position back at that time, but um, you know, she she worked it out. She, she, as you mentioned, she did find family members and she did get settled. But those first days and weeks must have been uh, terrifying. You know, she had never left the family farm or been far from the family farm, and she, suddenly she's in a city that's, you know, hundreds of times larger than than her uh, rural village in Ireland. So her her world was just cracked wide open and. Uh, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of, even though she did connect with some family members, it's not like there was a large support network that welcomed her and said, okay, here's how things work here in America. Uh, she had to figure it out on her own. And, of course, as she went looking for work, as she had to do, 
she was confronted by all kinds of ads that might say wanted a good, reliable woman to take care of a boy two years old, good wages, no washing or ironing, positively no Irish need apply. You tell us that eventually uh, these ads were so numerous that they earned their own acronym, NINA, N-I-N-A, no Irish need apply. Uh, That's just just like a stake through the heart. I mean, just hard to imagine what that would feel like to be an Irish immigrant here in America and seeing those signs everywhere. Uh, uh, Can you just help us understand the sort of the heart of that sort of animosity? What was driving that widespread prejudice against the Irish? You know, it's a great question, and, it, it, and I explore a lot of that theme throughout the book. In a, in a word, fear. You know, fear of the newcomer, fear of someone who's different from you, fear of someone who talks differently from you, and, and in particular when it came to the Irish who were Catholic, fear of someone who worships a different god than you. Um, and, you know, unfortunately it says a lot about our nation. We think of ourselves as a nation of immigrants, and we, in fact, are, but kind of despite ourselves, uh, we are. Uh, at that time, um, folks in Boston, which is the city I focus on mostly, um, because that's where the Kennedys ended up, but this was happening elsewhere, uh, the the uh, citizens were terrified of the Irish, or mad at the Irish, or afraid of the Irish. You know, <clears throat> it was the... Bridget was part of the first large-scale wave of immigrants to America. Um, you know, people have been coming here from countries across the world since the earliest days, um, and there were no laws that's, that restricted that. If you could get here, you could walk through the door. Um, but uh, in the 1850s, when this very large wave of Irish started to arrive on the shores, that triggered uh, this this xenophobia and nativism that had kind of been around for many years, maybe from the very beginning of uh, our colonizing this this land that wasn't ours. Um, but it, it it flared up in the in the 1850s when um, nativist groups became organized and um, and their sentiments became normalized. And so I was shocked and. Uh, actually saddened at times to see some of the same words that we hear, we've heard in recent years about send them back, and they're, these dirty Irish are coming to take your jobs, and, um, and let's build a wall, and, and all these same words that we ha- have heard more recently. <clears throat> but I think what was behind it was, you know, we, we were, this country was settled by, um, well, by ang- immigrants from England, um, and so there's there's been and continues to be a very Anglo-centric, very waspy, very Protestant uh, foundation here. So when the Irish came, they came from this land that the English hated. You know, the English had conquered Ireland. Um, I described some of the uh, uh, attitudes that the English held toward Ireland and the Irish. They hated them over there, too. Um, So these reviled Irish now show up on these very waspy Protestant shores, and uh, the, the Bostonians, the old-school Bostonians, just didn't want them. Um, and so that was what Bridget was up against. Um, and, uh, 
you know, pretty soon there's there are efforts to start making laws to keep the Irish down and out, to make it harder for them to vote, to keep them out of elected office, all these efforts to delegitimize them and their experience and keep them either out of the country or, if they couldn't do that, at least at the lowest rungs of, uh, uh, of the economic ladder, which is where Bridget, you know, wallowed for many years. Right. She does, of course, find a... Uh, find work uh, as a domestic, and you describe in, in really interesting detail uh, what her experience likely was, and 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 for others uh, doing that same kind of work at that point in time. And then, of course, ultimately she meets the man she would ultimately marry, uh, Patrick Kennedy. You say at one point they were nobodies who found each other, just two refugees competing to make it in America alongside immigrants from around the globe. Whether they courted and married for love or convenience or through a family arrangement, no matter. They'd start a small life together, just blocks from the wharves where they'd arrived, never to return to Ireland. They also would never see more than a few square miles of their new country. I remember reading, I think, that Patrick Kennedy was the only one of his siblings to ever leave Ireland. And right. uh, I don't think there's a photograph of him that exists. You have lots of photographs in your book, but there is none of Patrick Kennedy. And of course, there's uh, not a whole lot that we know. But what we know uh, uh, is is compelling. Uh, tell our listeners what you think it's important for us to take away from Patrick Kennedy. Yeah, well, you touched on one of the 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 interesting uh, aspect of, of who he was, he, he was the, the first and only in his immediate family to, to leave. He grew up on a farm a few miles away from the farm where Bridget was born and raised, so they were both from County Wexford. Um, I have visited that farm. Uh, Bridget's property is now uh, just over, overgrown and, and uh there's nothing on her property anymore, but the Bridget, I mean, the Kennedy family farm is still there, um, owned by descendants of that family. Um, so I was able to visit and get a brief, you know, sort of a little taste of what it might have been like back in the day. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, what's interesting about Patrick to me is <clears throat> he had, uh, you know, a few brothers and a sister and grew up working on the farm that he decided at some point in his teens or early 20s that he didn't want to just work on the farm. He wanted something else, and he found a job in the nearest town of New Ross, <clears throat> uh, just up the street from his farm, and he learned how to make barrels. Uh, he worked at a brewery there and was a trainee uh, as a cooper, as barrel makers were known, are known, um, and that skill gave him a little bit of a leg up. So when he decided to leave Ireland around the same time as Bridget comes to Boston, he has uh, something that a lot of Irish uh, immigrants at the time didn't. He had a skill that would help him find employment, and that's what he did. Um, so he ended up in East Boston. Um, he and Bridget both ended up there, and he found job as a as a barrel maker, um, which kept him and his wife, you know, in in maybe slightly better circumstances than some of the others they were working alongside, living alongside, um, who many of them were just working manual labor jobs, digging ditches, digging the tunnels that were starting to sluice through Boston or digging the railroads. Um, so Pat Patrick had a little bit more going on for himself, um, 
but I, I think just like Bridget, it says something about his character that he was willing to take the chance and be the first family member to leave and start fresh somewhere else. I wish we knew more about him, and I, like you said, I wish we had a picture of him. Uh, uh, but poor immigrants, they just didn't uh, leave behind their collected papers. Sadly, Patrick Kennedy falls ill to a disease that was running rampant in Boston, namely consumption. And, uh, and he ultimately dies on the 22nd of November, which is, of course, the same date that would uh, be the day that his great-grandson, John F. Kennedy, dies uh, from an assassin's bullet. And one of the things that's especially poignant is that uh, as Patrick Kennedy is dying of consumption, uh, Bridget uh, gives birth to uh, the last of their children, and that would be uh, Patrick uh, Jr. or P.J. Kennedy. And uh, it's just heartbreaking to think about what that must have been like uh, for yet another child to be born, another hungry mouth to feed at a time when uh, the, the head of the household, the husband, uh, is deteriorating before her eyes. Uh, but she goes on from there. Uh, in fact, that's one of the most remarkable things about Bridget's story is uh, her resiliency uh, in the wake of her husband's death. Yeah, I agree, and I and I think it's uh, been overlooked in the sort of the saga of the uh, of the Kennedy story. Um, <clears throat> you know, she if you picture her that we talked about that day when she's burying Patrick and she's got little PJ in her arms and three terrified uh, daughters by her side, it, 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 the family could have ended right there. You know, so many um, poor Irish kids, fatherless or motherless or orphaned were scooped up and taken away, you know, sent. There, there's a, a tidbit in the book about the orphan trains where uh, Irish kids were uh, snatched by, you know, do-gooder missionaries who w- wanted to save them from their poor circumstances and put them on a train and sent them west to be adopted by farm families. Uh, that could have easily happened to PJ or Bridget's daughters. Um, but she fought to keep them together uh, as a family, um, and and remarkably, somehow worked her way up from the lowest level job of being uh, a maid, and in time found work as a hairdresser in a department store in downtown Boston, which was the first significant step for her, kind of out of the muck and and toward what would become middle class respectability eventually. Right, and eventually uh, owning her own shop, and uh, it, it's just an incredible story, and you tell it. Uh, with as much detail as is possible to know. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, it sets the stage for the remarkable rise of her young son, Patrick, or P.J. Kennedy. And uh, I kind of knew this would happen, that uh, there was so much to talk about with Bridget that it leaves us very little time to uh, even sketch the remarkable life of, of P.J. Kennedy. Uh, but in a nutshell, I'm afraid... Uh, just describe kind of this amazing ascent uh, that we see with P.J. Kennedy uh, into a life that, for instance, his own father could scarcely have imagined for his son. Absolutely, yeah. No, he's another remarkable character. And uh, I I guess I would say the book is essentially divided into two halves. The first half is the remarkable ascent of Bridget Kennedy, and then the second half is the equally remarkable ascent of her son. 
born poor and fatherless, uh, gets into trouble as a young kid, uh, starts working like many um, boys his age did, working on the docks of East Boston as a longshoreman and then a stevedore. Um, and that could have been the life for him, just a backbreaking work and, and an early grave. Uh, but somehow he uh, had something else going on there. He becomes a, a saloon owner at a relatively young age, probably with money loaned from his mother, who was a success by that time. He buys another saloon. He gets involved in local politics in his ward in East Boston. Um, and then in time rises to become state legislator. Just, you know, within one generation, he is suddenly in a position to be uh, uh, an influential politician and help the lives of um, his constituents in ways that, like you said, his father, his parents could never have imagined when they arrived here. So PJ becomes, <clears throat> again, in a nutshell, a, a, a significant and powerful politician during his day, working alongside John F. Fitzgerald, who's the other grandfather of uh, JFK and the other Kennedys. So the story there I, I find fascinating, and it's a, and it's a great uh, also sort of prelude to the story of the Kennedys that we think we know, this uh, sort of uh, ascent of PJ into um, an influential and, and really popular and successful politician and businessman and also a wealthy uh, bank owner and coal business owner, and um, his success helps set the stage for his son Joe um, to go to Harvard and then and the left, lift the family even further out of their uh, circumstances. <clears throat> In this last minute, one of the things you, one of the points you make about P.J. Kennedy is he was essentially raised by and surrounded by strong, resilient Irish women. There were <laughs> almost no men whatsoever, at least in terms of the family tree, uh, yeah. in, in a position to, to raise him. Uh, do you have any, any guess in terms of what kind of effect that had in terms of shaping who he was and how he saw the world? Yeah, I, I do have my, my theories, and some of it's backed by the, the research. You know, looping back to something we talked about earlier, the P.J. Kennedy papers, <clears throat> I think you see the influence that Bridget and the other women in his life had on PJ in the words that are contained in the letters that he writes. He's he's a compassionate, empathetic man, and and in fact, there, there there's a comment from another uh, politician from <clears throat> the family, uh, the period of, that I write about, who who says it's remarkable that, in a nutshell, that PJ never got in trouble. You know, his heart was always actually in the right place. So many other Irish Democratic politicians from that period of time in the early 1900s got involved in scandals. <clears throat> John Fitzgerald, you know, had, had a, a, an affair um, that, that derailed his political career. Um, but P.J. stayed true and, 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 as far as we can tell, honest and never got in trouble uh, throughout his political and business career. <clears throat> and during that time, he's always working to help others, help them find a job, giving people money. In fact, one of his daughters later comments that he gave away too much money, that he was, you know, <clears throat> a little bit too generous and that the family would have ended up with more had he not been so free with his handouts. Um, but I think a lot of that generosity and empathy comes from his mother and the other women who raised and influenced him. And I think some of that trickles down through the rest of the family. I argue in the book that it probably skips the gen uh, generation of Joe Kennedy, who was not known for those, those traits, um, but you see it in, uh, in Joe's children and 
examples like the Special Olympics that were created, you know, with the help of Eunice Kennedy and some of the other efforts by those members of the family. I think you can trace those back to PJ and further back to the influence of Bridget. Hmm. It's an incredible story and a beautifully written book. Again, it's titled The First Kennedys, The Humble Roots of an American Dynasty, published by Mariner Books. And uh, for as lengthy as this conversation has been and as thorough, we have just scratched the surface in terms of all that a reader will find uh, in these uh, vivid pages. The author, Neil Thompson. Neil Thompson, congratulations on this marvelous book, and thank you so much for being my guest on The Morning Show. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Same here. Thanks for spending the time talking with me about the book, Greg. Really appreciate it.